invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. I have been looking forward to this day for a very, very long time. We gather to celebrate something that is unlike any other celebration in the world. Even every other religion, they cannot celebrate what we are celebrating, even though Christ Bible Church knows that we aren't really a religion because we don't work for our salvation. But every other religion, every other religion, Buddha is dead. Somewhere in the ground, buried. Muhammad is dead. He is buried in Medina and his followers travel there to visit his grave where his body is still buried. And the list goes on and on. Only Jesus Christ alone is the risen Savior. Only Christians follow a risen Savior. We have no tomb to go to where we can see his body. He is not here. He is risen. As I was thinking through where to turn, what to preach on, Oh, I love 1 Corinthians 15, and maybe one day if the Lord tarries and we have another chance to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we will go there. The theology of the resurrection and all that it means for us. We could turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We could turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you've been raised with Jesus Christ, then seek the things that are above, where He is right now seated at the right hand of God. There are so many places we could turn. But I wanted to turn to Matthew 28. And I wanted to go back to the narrative of the first, the very first time that the words were ever uttered, he is not here. I wanted to go back to that narrative. As we celebrated Good Friday, it is always a prayer of mine that we would feel and remember and be affected as if Jesus died just yesterday. It's a prayer that Martin Luther used to pray, and it's a prayer that Charles Spurgeon used to pray as well, and it's a prayer that I have made my own every single Good Friday so too with Easter Sunday. I pray that we would feel as if just yesterday we learned, even just this morning, we were told by the women, He is not here. He is risen. As they heard from the angels and report to us, let's go with the women to the empty tomb. Let's hear the angel speak as if he was speaking for the very first time. Let's see the utter stupidity of the religious leaders. Their stupidity just keeps on going on and on and on. Let's see their attempted cover-up and their absolutely foolish logic. Let's see our Savior, risen, alive, with love for those that forsook Him. Let's see His final words, His final sermon before He would ascend. Let's go there. Let's go there. And let's be affected. Just three things this morning that we're going to look at. Number one, the certainty of the resurrection. The certainty of the resurrection. Number two, the attempted cover-up of the resurrection by the religious leaders. Number three, the consequences. The consequences of the resurrection. What this all means for us. But first, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 Let's start with the certainty of the resurrection. Can we be certain that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? Can we be certain that there is no body in the Middle East in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea? Can we be certain of that? Well, in order to be certain, we need to have eyewitness testimony. 
And I believe we have many eyewitnesses given to us here in Matthew chapter 28. Let's start in verse 1. After the Sabbath, Saturday, and that's the Saturday uh, right after the Good Friday when Jesus was slaughtered on a cross. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, this is Sunday now, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So our first eyewitnesses are the women, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, specifically in Matthew. But we are also told in Mark, we did this in Family Bible Hour, we are told that uh, three women go to the tomb in Mark. So there are groups of women that are going. John just singles out Mary Magdalene. Luke talks about four women and then groups of other women. So there are many women that are going to the tomb in different groups at different times. But why are they going? They're going to anoint the body of Jesus with spices that were either prepared or bought beforehand. As was custom to make sure that the stench of the body would not come out of the tomb. They would encase the body. They had already done this. They had already encased the body. They had wrapped it and encased it with spices. On Friday afternoon, Friday evening, before Sabbath, they had already done this. So about 70 pounds of spices were already on Jesus' body. And they were simply going again after the Sabbath. They had to wait. And after the Sabbath, they were going to go and continue to take care of his body. Meaning what? What did these women think they were going to find? They would never have thought they were going to find a resurrected Savior. They're not playing a trick here. They're not playing a game here. They saw their Savior brutally executed on a cross. They also saw where the body was buried. Joseph of Arimathea took the body. Uh, Pilate granted him access to the body. He took the body, took it to a tomb that had never been used before, and apparently it was a very expensive tomb. So this tomb would not have been just a normal average tomb. Mary Magdalene goes with Joseph of Arimathea. Also, the other women go with Joseph. So they see where the body is laid. They know where to go back. And so they go. And they go expecting to find the Roman soldiers in front of the entrance, find the stone there, not knowing how they're going to roll it away. Almost in total despair and depression. They just are going through motions. We don't even know how we're going to open the the tomb, but this is just what we do. What else are we going to do? Our master that we have followed for three and a half years has been executed. They go to the tomb. They are our first eyewitnesses, and we're going to see their interaction with the angels. But before we do, Let's look specifically at these angels, the second eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Verse 2 says, Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. So the angels are there. The the women are coming. The angels are coming. And the severe earthquake, Matthew tells us that word for the severe earthquake had occurred because an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. So the reason for the earthquake was the angel coming down out of heaven, rolling away the stone. And the the language there, if you 
if you harmonize all of the gospel records when they talk about rolling away the stone, I, I always have just thought of uh, an angel kind of looking at the guards saying, you wish you had muscles like mine, rolling away the stone, just kind of like a, a big pizza, just rolling it on its side. Here we go, move it over, and I'm going to sit on it. The language in the Gospels is very specific, that it's not rolling away a stone in its track just up the hill where it normally would be rolled. The language is very specific, that they're moving, they're throwing this rock. They're taking this rock and they're rolling it out of the groove, out of where it normally should be. They're throwing it down on its face and they're sitting on it to say, see, we moved it and that tomb is open and that tomb is empty. They want to make sure that the women can see. So many people I've heard over the years preach that they roll the stone away so that Jesus can come out. Um, they forget that Jesus can walk through walls. Uh, Jesus did not need the tomb to be opened to come out of it. The stone is rolled away so that the women can go in and see that Jesus is gone. The angels. Matthew just describes one because there was one that was a prominent speaking angel. But we are also told by Mark that they look like just young men. We're told by Luke that there's two of them and they have a message to explain and to share. And what is their message? First in verse 3, their appearance is like lightning. Their clothing is white as snow. They're radiating in the early hours of the morning. And their message, drop down to verse 5, their message is, do not be afraid don't be afraid, not only because of us and our dazzling appearance. Every time you see someone interacting with an angel in the scriptures, it's not, hey, look, it's a cute little angel. It's fall flat on your face. Am I going to die soon? And the angels have to always say, no, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. Don't be afraid. I bring good tidings. Here the angels say, don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He was killed. But he's not here because he's risen, just as he said. So come on in. See the place where he was lying. Look, he's gone. His body is gone. The angel's message, come, see, and then go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. Don't be afraid. Come and see, go and tell. We'll look at those words in a little while towards the end of our time together. But they give them assurance. He's not here. He's not here. They opened the tomb so the women could come in to see Jesus is gone. The angels themselves are eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus was not in that tomb. We're also missing verse 4. The guards, they are another eyewitness testimony, eyewitness account. In verse 4, these guards that you remember were established by Pilate. It's a very interesting story. The Jews went to Pilate. Uh, interestingly enough, the Jews, the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus, believed in his words more than his disciples did. Because his disciples don't even remember, don't even believe, don't even remember that Jesus said he was going to rise again on three day, in three days. But the religious leaders go back to Pilate and they say, when he was on the earth, he made claims that he would rise again from the dead. So can we have some guards to come and secure the tomb? And Pilate's response is just perfect. Pilate has had it up to here. He's done with these people. And he says, take your guards. 
And he says these words, make the tomb as secure as you can. Either he is genuinely saying, go ahead, make the tomb secure. Or he's saying, if you think that you're going to stop a man from rising from the dead, go ahead, try and secure that tomb. If that man in that tomb can come out, guards are not going to stop him. If he can rise again from the dead, you can take as many men as you want, but you're not stopping him. They say, we'll still take him. So they do. They roll a stone in front of the tomb. They seal the tomb and they stand in front of the tomb. At least four guards, potentially more. And what happens to these guards? Verse four, the guards who were standing there shook for fear of seeing the angel. So they didn't faint before the angel came down. They shook for fear because of the angel coming down. And they became like dead men. They fainted completely unconscious. Matthew has a little play on words here because in verse 2, he says, Behold, a severe earthquake, Greek word seismos, you know, that seismic activity. And then he says in verse 4, The guards seismos for fear. Just as the earth shook, so shook the guards with extreme anguish and fear because they know something's happening. Imagine their conversation. Why are we here? It's midnight. There's a dead man. When have we ever guarded a dead man before? What is this about? Well, we're guarding him because they think that he's going to rise from the dead. Yeah, right. Baloney, he's not coming back from the dead. Has anybody ever seen anyone come back from the dead? I sure haven't. This is just plain stupidity. So let's do our job and then we'll get out of here. And then all of a sudden, a dazzling light, two angels, an earthquake and the tomb, the stone rolled away from the tomb. You know, everything you've been making fun of, you begin to think, This guy's coming out of the tomb. And if we were guarding the entrance of this tomb, trying to keep him from coming out, what's he going to think of us? If he's alive in there, did he hear us talking about how stupid he is in there? He's going to have some vengeance for us. This is bad. They fall down like dead men. We're going to see that they take their eyewitness testimony to the religious leaders. They saw an empty tomb. It's interesting to note that no one ever denies that the tomb is empty. No one ever has denied an empty tomb in all of human history. That tomb is empty. We just have to explain how it's empty. How did it become that way? We have many different options that people who do not believe in Jesus Christ, do not believe that the Bible is truly God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant word. And so they say things like, well, the women went to the wrong tomb and that tomb happened to be open. Uh, Well, number one, they went to the tomb on Friday afternoon. They saw the tomb. This was a unique tomb. This was a brand new tomb. It was an expensive tomb. And they saw it. They knew where it was, and they went back to the same one. Also, the religious leaders knew where Jesus was buried, and so they took their guards and placed them in front of the tomb where Jesus was buried. So when the women go to the tomb where Jesus was buried, where the Roman guards are at the tomb where Jesus is buried, to say, oh, we've mixed this all up, it's the wrong tomb. That would never have happened. The religious leaders would never have placed Roman guards in front of the wrong tomb And the women would never have gone back to the wrong tomb. They knew what tomb this was. They saw it. 
They placed Jesus' body in the tomb on Friday afternoon and then said to each other, let's meet back on Sunday morning. Some people say, okay, then it was the religious leaders. They stole his body. They wanted to take it away so the disciples couldn't do the job of stealing it away. The religious leaders would never have stolen his body. Because if they did that, then all of the disciples could say, well, his body's been resurrected from the dead. He's risen. He's gone. Some people say, well, but then they could have shown, oh, the body's here. You're just liars. But they never were able to show that the body was there. The religious leaders would never have done that. What about the disciples? Did they do it? No, the disciples didn't do that. You remember, they were so terrified when Jesus was alive that they thought, you know what? We're going to die in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to be taken away and killed, so we're going to flee. And they all fled. Even here, if they would have listened to the words of Jesus, they would have been there at the tomb waiting for him to come out. But they're too afraid. They're up in the upper room. They cannot get out of that room terrified at the prospect of potentially we're going to die in the exact same way that our master has. Why would they all of a sudden say, you know what, we can take on four guards. We can roll away a tomb or a stone in front of a tomb. We can take the body out. What are we going to do with it? I don't know. Let's make up this idea that he rose from the dead. Okay, what happens when they don't believe us? Keep on making it up. Keep on propagating it. What happens when they start killing us? What happens when they crucify us upside down? What happens when they slit our throats? What happens when we burn at the stake? What happens when they put us on a stake? They uh, impale us and they light us on fire uh, in Nero's Colosseum. What about that? Would anybody say, I know that his body was truly dead and I know that we just stole it in the middle of the night, but I'm just going to keep on holding on to this lie and die this horrific death because of it? No, no. The only true fact is that Jesus was gone because he rose. Nobody stole his body. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Just as he said, the angel says in verse 6, just as he said he would, he rose from the dead. So the guards are eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus. We have the women, we have the angels, we have the guards. We also have Jesus himself after the angel says in verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And then they left. Verse 8. They left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran and reported it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and came up and took hold of his. They came up, took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren and leave for Galilee and they will see me there. They took hold of him. The disciples were eyewitnesses. They took hold. They didn't just see a mirage. They didn't just see, oh, I think that might have been Jesus. They took hold of him. They bowed down at his feet and worshiped him. Jesus speaks to them and they all hear his voice. Ultimately, over 500, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, are going to hear him at one time. So these are not just images or fantasies or imaginations. Notice Jesus' words. I love these words in verse 10. Don't be afraid. Go and take my word to my brothers. My brothers who forsook me in the garden. My brothers who were too terrified to stay with me. My brothers who betrayed me, neglected me, left me, denied me. My brothers who 
on Thursday night and Friday morning renounce that they even knew me. Oh, but I love them and they're my brothers. He doesn't say, go take my word to those crazy hooligans that just are no good. He says, the ones that I love, my brothers. He says the same thing to Peter through the angels in Mark. In Mark chapter 16, the angel says, go tell his disciples and make sure you tell Peter that he's alive and he wants to see you again. Why? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. The last memory that Peter had of Jesus was that of Jesus turning after being beaten, severely beaten, turning and looking Peter in the eyes as the rooster crowed three times and Peter wept, ran away and wept. That's the last living memory that he had of his Savior. And the angel says, go tell Peter. I want to see him again. I want to see him. So, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, all of the women. It's also very interesting to note that if this book is made up, as some people say, well, the eyewitness account of the, the women is, is really not to be taken seriously because this book is just made up. It's written so much later than Jesus' resurrection, which isn't very true. Um, it was only written about 35 years later after Jesus was raised from the dead. It was written by eyewitness testimonies. But if you did want to falsify a record of a man who had died, but we're going to say he rose from the dead. If you wanted to make up that lie, back in the Jewish times in the first century, you would never have said that the first people that saw Jesus were women. Women back then didn't even have the right of being able to be eyewitness testimonies in a court of law. So why would you say, oh, we want to write a, a fantasy. We want to write a fiction that we want everybody to believe. And we're going to say that the first people that saw Jesus are people that no one will listen to. Nobody will take their credible evidence. No one ever would have done that. I love how Jesus decides to speak to the women first. The angels decide to speak to the women first. God, in his sovereignty, speaks to what would have been the least of those in that time period. The certainty of the resurrection. There is no doubt that Jesus has risen from the dead from all these eyewitness testimonies and so much more. The road to Emmaus, he speaks to two people. Jesus speaks to two people on the road to Emmaus. 500 over 500 in Galilee that we're actually going to see in a little bit. And yet, people try to cover it up and that's in verses 11 through 15. First, the certainty of the resurrection. Secondly, the cover-up. The attempted cover-up. Verse 11, now, while they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported the chief priest all that had happened. Hey, his body's gone. The tomb is open and the tomb is empty. There were angels. There was an earthquake. They were speaking. We heard certain things and then we couldn't stand it anymore and we passed out. But we know what we saw. What are we going to do about it? When they assembled, verse 12, with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and they said, you are to say to his disciples or say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Again, it's not, oh, tell everybody that the empty tomb is really not empty. It's filled with the dead body. No, that tomb is empty. We have to figure out a way to make sense of it all. 
And I just think this is one of the dumbest sentences in all of Scripture. Listen, if somebody ever told you this, oh, I know what happened. It happened just like this, just as I tell you, because I was asleep for all of it. Well, how do you know if you were asleep? The reason why they have to pay them such a large sum of money is because these soldiers never would have slept on the job because in sleeping on the job, they failed to do their job. And in failing to do their job, they would have been released, no more pay, at the least, and at the most, they might have been executed for not doing their job. So the elders and the chief priests all say, here's a large sum of money because we know what you're about to say is ludicrous. We know that it will probably put your job in jeopardy. Verse 14, you can see it there. If this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and we will keep you out of the trouble that you are surely going to get into. So they took the money. They did as they had been instructed. And the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day when Matthew's writing. People were still saying, uh, the disciples took the body. When? When the guards were asleep. Who saw them? How'd they do that? The guards were asleep. What happened to the guards? What's going on? That's why I call this the attempted cover-up. Because people don't really believe this anymore. It's fizzled out. The best of the best the brightest of the brightest minds that want to say the Bible is fake, is false, is fantasy, they would say, well, that argument's a terrible argument. That doesn't hold up. It's an attempted cover-up. They knew that this wasn't reality. And even in attempting to cover up the resurrection, they proved that it happened. They prove there is an empty tomb, and we can't answer it by their, the disciples came and stole away his body. We didn't touch it. It's gone, and we don't know how. Even in their attempt of covering it up, they prove that it's true. Finally, number three, the consequences of the resurrection. We see eyewitness testimony. We see the guards going with the religious leaders trying to attempt to cover up the account of the resurrection. But here's what really matters. Who cares about Jesus being alive? Why does it matter to us today? I think verses 16 through 20 will give us many consequences, good consequences, effects, actions of why the resurrection matters to us today. Number one, obedience. Verse 16, but in contrast to the unbelieving religious leaders, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee as they had been told which is a good thing to do because if a man dies and comes back from the dead, you should probably do what he tells you to do. The resurrection demands obedience. This man is clearly better than me, different than me. He can own me. He can control me. And so they do what the resurrected Lord told them to do. They went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, verse 17, they worshipped him. That's number two. Not only is obedience a necessary consequence of the resurrection, uh, if a man comes back from the grave and tells you to do something, you do it, but also you worship that man. If he claims to be God and he comes back from the dead, then you worship him as who he claims to be. They do that. They worship him. But... Middle of verse 17, and I love this because, again, if you want to write a book that's total fiction, but you want everybody to believe it, you would say, and everybody, millions and millions of people started believing, and no one ever doubted in the entire universe, and it was just an amazing movement. 
They say some people worship, but some were doubtful. That is a consequence of the resurrection. Doubting. This is a challenging truth that must be taken by faith. And so where faith is necessary, doubting is possible. But the glory of God is that he gives us the grace to believe as we place our trust in him. So obedience is a necessary consequence of the resurrection. Worship is a consequence. Doubting is a consequence. Number four, authority given to Christ is an absolutely necessary consequence. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And you might ask, well, didn't he have authority before that? He had authority to cleanse the temple. He had authority over demons. He had authority to do many things. He calmed the storm. He calmed the seas. The key word here is all authority. He had authority. And he had a lot more authority than you and I have. But as D.A. Carson writes, the spheres in which he now exercises absolute authority are enlarged to include all of heaven, all of earth. Now he has authority over death. Now he has authority over hell. Now he has authority over all things. So, if authority has been given to him through his resurrection from the dead, then what he is about to say, it doesn't matter what he says to us. If he has all authority, what he says we must do. If he says, this is, this is the reality. I have authority, and it's all authority, and it's total authority. And then he gives us a command. We cannot question it. We must do it. doesn't matter what he says next. If he has all authority, we have to do it. And that's fifth. We have a moral obligation to evangelize because of the resurrection. There is no um, just coincidence that Matthew puts the Great Commission right after the resurrection story. The Great Commission is a consequence of the resurrection. Because Jesus has all authority and he gives a command based on his own resurrection from the dead, we must live it out. We have a moral obligation to go to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all that Jesus commands us. We have a moral obligation to it. One writer says it this way, This gives me a great sense of urgency and encouragement to continue the mission of Jesus. God did not place me on earth simply to have a family or enjoy a few hobbies or work at a career. He has sent me here on a mission. Whether my vocation is in law enforcement, in dentistry, in accounting, or in retail sales, my mission is to produce followers of Jesus Christ. Even my hobbies and relationships and life experiences are a means to this end. When people resist my pursuit of this mission and call me narrow-minded or fanatical, I keep on track by remember that I am authorized to carry out the mission. The authority re- resides with the resurrected Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. We're under a moral obligation to evangelize. Now, I know, I know it's scary. I know it can be terrifying to tell people about the gospel. But can I say, can I plead with you, brothers and sisters? Let's be bold in our evangelism. Can I, can I give you a money-back guarantee? If we are bold in our evangelism, I can promise you in eternity we will never regret it. I can promise you in eternity we will re- never regret our boldness 
in evangelism. Sure, it might be scary. Sure, there are costs. And yes, the costs seem to be getting even worse and higher and more intense. But 10,000 years from now, no one is going to care about those costs. No one. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, we are under moral obligation to share the truth that he commands us to share. Verse 20, the end of verse 20, a sixth consequence of the resurrection is that Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. He's with us always. Before he was resurrected from the dead, he was in one place. He was in one body, and he could not go anywhere else other than where that one body went. Now that he has ascended into heaven, he sends his spirit to be with us so that he himself is with us wherever we go. He says, I'm with you always. Because of the resurrection, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I have all authority. I'm with you always. So go. Make disciples. Go. He's with us forever. He doesn't tell us to do something and say, go do it on your own. Good luck. Be warm, be filled, have fun. Hope nothing bad happens to you. He says, I'm right there with you. And I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. A final thing that's not even in these verses, but we know it from Scripture and it's so true for our lives. And it's one last point that I wanted to make from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we know that our own bodily resurrection is secure. We know that our own bodily resurrection is secure because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians six fourteen, God both raised up the Lord and he will raise us up by his power. Oh, the hope. We could, we could spend an entire sermon dealing with that hope. You can never live a freer life than when you can say with confidence, dying is gain. You can never live a freer life. You can't get freer than that. I have no fear. Death has no hold on me. What can death do to me? It only makes my day because I get to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. You don't get freer than that. One day we will put on an imperishable body, exchange this body of corruption with one that will never wear out. That's really good news, not only for our loved ones who have passed away. That's good news for us. Can we just admit from somebody who just had laryngitis and it hurt to breathe, from somebody who's had kidney stones, I can't wait to have a glorified body that never has those problems. Jesus says, because I have been raised, you also will be raised. Every Easter, I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. She was 17 when she was in a diving accident and broke her neck, paralyzed from the neck down. She talks about a time when she was at church and the pastor asked uh, all the congregants to kneel down and she couldn't. She was in a wheelchair and she said she started weeping because she just stood out like a sore thumb. She says this, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I will be free to jump up, to dance, to kick, to do aerobics. I was thinking, I don't want to do aerobics in heaven. 
And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees and quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And she says, I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? I always think of her when Easter Sunday rolls around. What hope she has because Jesus is alive. On that day, as uh, Samwise Ganji said in The Lord of the Rings, when he found out that Gandalf wasn't truly dead, spoiler alert, he says, you're not dead? He says, oh, does this mean that everything sad will come untrue? On the last day, when we see Jesus face to face, brothers and sisters, everything sad will come untrue. The trials, the suffering, the difficulties, the tests, all of the despair, all of the, the doubts, the fears, in the, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, they'll be gone. All because of the resurrection. All because of the resurrection. As we close, I, I want to go back to the angels' four first words to the women. Commands. And just think about them for our own hearts, our own lives. Come, see, go, and tell. There are many things that hinder us from coming to Jesus. There are many things that could have hindered the women from going to the tomb such as the Roman guards, such as the stigma that a crucified Savior, a crucified man, would have held. Maybe you are afraid of the stigma that you will bear if you claim to follow Jesus Christ and you say no to every other passion, to every other pleasure, to every other pursuit. Can I just ask you, have you obeyed the invitation that Jesus gives, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give them rest. You can work and work and work to try and be good, to try and be better, to try and be best, but there's no way you can ever work off your sin. All of our sin demands, it demands that God would punish it. We have sinned against the holy God and we so often try to do our own good works to kind of burn away the bad things we've done or just outweigh the bad things we've done. Maybe God will grade on a curve. That's why Jesus said, no, stop. Stop striving. Come to me if you are weak and weary from striving to earn my favor because I will earn the favor of God for you. That's what Good Friday and the resurrection are all about. Jesus says, I will earn the favor of God for you so you can stop striving. Believe in me. Come. The angel said, see. See. What do we have to see? We have to see the condescension of Christ. That he would step out of heaven. That he would become a man. That he would come to earth to become fully human. So that he could take our place. He could be our perfect substitute. 
He could have sent an angel. Angels are sinless, but an angel couldn't have died in our place because an angel is not a perfect human substitute. So he himself came, lived the perfect life that you and I could never live, died the death that you and I deserve, and rose from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death once and for all, and offering to us eternal life. See. See what our sin costs. See the horrific nature of our sin. See the horrific death that you and I deserve because of our sin. We should have been lying there in that tomb, slaughtered on a cross. We should be there. That's what our sin demands. And yet Jesus, out of his love, says, I will take that penalty. I will take that punishment for you. See the fact that we will all one day lay in a tomb just like Jesus. We will all one day ourselves die. There is a day when we will no longer be able to believe in Jesus Christ and in nothing else for eternal life. The finality of death should make us examine ourselves. See. See that Jesus is not in the tomb any longer. He is risen. Come and see. He is risen. He has conquered death. He's not there anymore. He's alive and see that we will rise with him on the last day. See that we will rise with him on the last day. Spurgeon says it so well. If Jesus tarries, it is certain that we believers will die and be put into a grave and then decay. This fact says this. Be assured that no matter what becomes the dust of our bodies, as surely as the Savior rose, we will rise again in a beauty and a glory that we know little about. The body of that dear child of God you said goodbye to will rise again. Those eyes that close, those very eyes will see the King in His beauty. The ears that could not hear the last tender words you spoke, those ears will hear the eternal melodies. The heart that grew cold will beat again with new life. It will leap with joy at the homecoming festivities. So do not fear death. What is it? The grave is just a bath where our bodies, like Esther, buries itself in spices to make it sweet and fresh for the embrace of the glorious king in immortality. Death is just the wardrobe where we lay aside the garment for a while and come out clean and pure. Oh, brothers and sisters, see that you and I will be raised from the dead because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come and see. Then go and tell. Go. Don't linger at the tomb any longer. Don't doubt. Don't second guess. Don't go, ah, is it really? i got to take a second look, a third look. Go. Go and tell. There is a fact that we must proclaim. Jesus is alive. Go and tell. So what does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for us today? Tim Keller says it like this. After a criminal does his time in jail and fully satisfies the sentence, the law has no more claim on him, and he walks out free. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. That was an infinite sentence, but he must have satisfied it fully because on Easter Sunday he walked out free. The resurrection was God's way of stamping paid in full right across human history so that no one could miss it. 
As Revelation 1.18 says, Jesus Christ was dead, but now is alive and holds the keys of death and of Hades. And those that place their trust in him alone and follow him alone will have eternal life. Johnny Erickson taught us, says, Amazing love, how can it be that God should plunge the knife in his own heart for me, all the while me, dry and indifferent, cool and detached, that he, the God of life, should conquer death by embracing it, that he should destroy the power of sin by letting it destroy him and rising from the dead. Jesus did that for us. And since we have been raised to newness of life with him in salvation, we must seek the things where he is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. What does the resurrection mean? It means that if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, murdered because of your sins, because of my sins, dying in my place, dying in your place, bearing the full wrath of God against our sins, but rising to newness of life, paying the price in full, God vindicating that sacrifice, saying, yes, that sacrifice works once for all. What does it mean for us? Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is there to condemn you? It is Christ that died. Yes, rather, it is Christ that has risen again who is at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we are free. Can I ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes? And as we prepare our hearts to glory in the resurrection... I just want to ask our own hearts, have we come to Jesus? Have we seen the horrific nature of our sin, the cost of our offenses against the Holy God and the love of Jesus that would take our place? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this? that the Lord of heaven, the Lord of bliss, would bear the dreadful curse for my soul. God, thank you for letting us celebrate on Friday night the invitation that Jesus made to come. And God, I pray for all of us in this room. God, for those that have placed their trust in you as Lord and Savior, as Master, they understand their own sin. Even as the thief on the cross said, I deserve the death that I am dying, but this man is innocent and he is the only way I can live. Please remember me when you go into your kingdom. God, for those who have placed their trust in you, who have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, God, I pray that the resurrection of your son would bring about a celebration in their life. Yes, there's a moral obligation to share the gospel, but how could we not How could we not share the gospel? How could we not plead with others to come and to see? God, make us urgent in sharing the message. 
And God, for those in this room that have not placed their trust in you as Lord and Savior, maybe they have doubts. God, I pray that you would show them today that it's not the strength of their faith that offers them salvation. It's the object and the strength of the object of their faith. God, show us our sin. Show us our need for Jesus and show us the fact that Jesus came to satisfy the wrath of God. God, I pray that you'd bring salvation, that even this morning, souls would choose to turn to you. They would renounce any form of self-reliance, any thought that they could somehow be good enough or do good works to earn your favor. Even as we looked at on Friday, that we would not again spit in the face of Christ by saying, you died needlessly. I can do good things. I don't need that sacrifice. God, bring salvation. And may we all together, with one voice, behold Jesus, the risen Lamb. He is not dead. He is not buried. He is not in a tomb. He is risen just as he said. And may we behold him there, the risen Lamb. Give us eyes to see. May the spiritual eyes of our heart be open to see the risen Lamb, our perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I Am, the King of glory and the King of grace. God, I pray that we would be reminded that when we are hidden in Christ, we cannot die. Our souls are purchased by your blood. Our life is hid with Christ on high, who is our Savior and who is our God. Be pleased as we behold, as we come and we see together, and then as we go and tell of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. 